BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up on today's Bulls Talk podcast presented by Coors Light, we've got Bulls insider Casey Johnson, Bulls writer Rob Schaefer, and our podcast producer Tony Gill. I'm Kevin Anderson to break down the MVP race, the sixth man, the most improved rookie of the year, defensive player of the year, and coach of the year in the NBA this season. Some of the categories like rookie of the year are pretty easy to pick, but others like coach of the year and the sixth man uh, can go a lot of different ways. So we will break down the winners in each of those categories who we expect to win in each of those categories. And uh, also a little Casey Johnson uh, tidbit on what the Bulls might do if they can do a eight-team summer league of sorts. That's coming up. Born in the Rockies, Coors Light is lagered cold for a crisp, clean taste. Filtered cold to ensure clarity and brightness. And packaged cold for peak refreshment. Because those who thirst for more deserve the world's most refreshing beer. Welcome into the Bulls Talk Podcast. I'm Kevin Anderson filling in Jason Golf. Happy to be joined by Casey Johnson, Rob Schaefer, and our guy, Tony Gill. All right, guys, we're going to go through the award voting, who we like in each of the key categories, as well as the all-rookie team. Uh, before we get into that, kind of semi-Bulls-ish news is the discussion recently around the league that the eight teams not going to Orlando are feeling left out. Uh, literally and figuratively in regards to the tournament that's happening with the 22 teams uh, down in Florida. Uh, Casey, what are you hearing about a potential summer league in regards to the eight teams not going? And do you see this as a 1% chance of happening? 10%? Where do you see the read the situation? Yeah. I mean, our tourist Karnaschovas is on record as saying this is something that he would be in favor of, you know, the last time we had a chance to talk to him in his end of season conference call. I think there's varying levels of uh, desire for this amongst the eight teams. Um, you know, Steve Kerr is on record as saying that, you know, he wouldn't want to travel anywhere that practice time is more important. And at the end of the day, even if they get that, I think that's a win. Um, you know, uh, as we know that, uh, the league can't control players in the off season, but if uh, given the unprecedented nature of this off season, if they formalize some kind of OTAs or you know off season group practice plan, even for individual teams, or maybe even have them scrimmage like a team in their market or nearby, like a Detroit, you know, Bulls can play Detroit or Cleveland one or two times. Maybe they can pull off something like that. I personally, this is just my personal uh, feeling, and also just based on some conversations mm-hmm. I've had. I um, think it's going to be a long shot that they're going to be able to pull off the eight-team um, league, just given that, you know, uh, there are a lot of logistical hurdles to overcome. And uh, both the league and the Players Association, based on the conference call we were on last Friday, is on record as saying that any such scenario would have to exactly replicate the safety protocols in place for Orlando. And we know, we all know how large of an undertaking that was. 
And it still is. I mean, I, I'm not entirely confident that what the NBA starts on July 30th, they're actually going to be able to finish given the, the numbers that are coming out of Florida and specifically in that county recently. Um, Rob, is it fair to the Bulls and the other seven teams not going that they don't get to play at least eight more games in terms of valuation? Do you see it as a huge detriment that when those teams start play, hopefully uh, next December, that they're going to be behind the teams that did get to play? Yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely a nuance to that in, in terms of it being unfair. As far as evaluation goes, I'm a little hesitant to say that eight games in whatever uh, kind of unprecedented environment that the games would be playing in. I, I, I would be hesitant to take too much evaluation-wise away from that. So I don't know that eight games are going to change the book on uh, any opinions that we've formed or any evaluations that have been formed on players or the coaching staff or anything like that. So I don't know if I would go so far as to call it unfair from that perspective. Uh, is it a little unfair that these eight teams are going to potentially go eight or nine months uh, between real game action? Uh, yeah, uh, I suppose it is, but it's an unprecedented situation. And if that's the way it happens, I mean, you know, people are just going to have to, uh, to make compromises and, and figure it out. Um, I, I just, to, to hear you talk about it, Casey, and to and to hear the way that it seemed like the messaging was being conveyed over that conference call with uh, Michelle Roberts and Mark Tatum, it seemed like speaking mostly uh, on this topic. To me, when I just look at the logistical hurdles uh, that the league has faced trying to get the Orlando restart off the ground, and for that we're talking about crowning a champion and recouping uh, whatever playoff television revenue that they can and all of those different factors that are a little bit more high stakes – uh, I just I have a hard time getting behind going through all of those uh, different hurdles for you know eight teams that are not necessarily competitive and that like I said eight games of evaluation I, I don't know how much it'll do um, so just from a safety perspective I have a hard time putting my full weight behind it but as you said Casey uh, the Bulls new regime certainly is um, and I understand why they are uh, because you don't want a young team to go through that extended layoff but. Uh, it just seems like a task that is so tall that um, it might just end up being another compromise that, that people have to make. And we've seen players from teams in Orlando say, nah, you know what, I'm out. You know, um, you know, even like David Bertans and Avery Bradley and then, you know, certainly individual reasons for not going. And this is for teams that potentially uh, certainly could make the playoffs or be title contenders in the Lakers sense. I can't imagine that if they did a summer league, let's say they picked Las Vegas, which actually would, would probably make sense for multiple reasons. Uh, but let's say they did a, those eight teams playing in Las Vegas. I would think that there'd be dozens and dozens of players who would not want to go and be okay sitting out uh, in that environment. It just seems to me like Tony, that um, it, it just it wouldn't be as impactful and that we would just be getting essentially a modified version of summer league maybe just a little bit more uh talent involved than we do typically uh in july i'm like my whole thing is like what are, what are we trying to do here what are we trying to prove you know, <laughs> I mean, that's just my whole thing it's like what well you know giving up particip participation you know trophies or whatever like i mean the teams weren't good enough to compete in a in a playoff scenario and that's that's the fact and um maybe next year there'll be better um, in order not to feel like they've been, um, you know, kind of separated from the group. 
but I think about in particular for me is uh, like Carl Towns, who lost a parent due to all of this. Um, and obviously Minnesota isn't playing in the 22-team the playoff, but it's like for him, it's real. Uh, and for a lot of players that are, you know, pulling out now because of uh, the safety concerns, it's, it's real for them. So I get, you know, people still wanting to do their jobs in terms of players and wanting to play basketball and want to operate as close to normal as, as possible with finishing out uh, the season. But it's, it's still uncertain. And we're still trying to – the NBA is still trying to figure out how to actually do uh, a playoff scenario for the teams that would matter. Um, in of course of the the thirty teams or whatever, uh, so trying to figure out a way to get teams where it doesn't matter seems like a little over the top at this point uh, of our society, and I don't think I don't think it's necessary. I mean, again, what 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 is it for? What's what's the goal here? Is it just to get some money? Like, then just say that. Hey, we want to try and recoup as much money as we can but they won't say that because it's wouldn't feel right saying it. <laughs> so um, if, if it's just about, about the money, I mean, there's a lot of rich people involved, players included um, in, in the midst of all of this. And from, I mean, Casey, you, you would know better than I do that they, they should be still getting paid. Correct. Yeah. They just, uh, they, they've, they've, the, the paychecks have been reduced to put more money into escrow, but they're, they're still getting paid. Yes. So, I mean, um, I just, I just don't see the, the benefit from, for asking more people to put themselves at risk for no real apparent reason other than making up some TV money. Yeah. So we'll see. Um, I, I would be absolutely shocked if it ends up happening. Um, you know, I, I think maybe Casey's idea has got a little more validity where the, you know, the Pistons and Bulls can get together and, and do a four-game scrimmage back-to-back or something along those lines. I think that's probably a little bit more likely. But but even that, um, you know, it, it's, again, what's happening in Orlando and the amount of resources the NBA is putting in to make sure this happens and so that they can actually get through two months of a postseason uh, is unprecedented. So. Uh, I would think that the anything in regards to those eight other teams has is, is got to be very, very low on the priority to get that done. Uh, moving on. So one of the main reasons we want to do the podcast uh, today and the topics is certainly the MVP races. Over the past several episodes, you've heard us talk about all NBA teams. Uh, today we're going to go over the key awards and the all-rookie teams. So let's, uh, let's start with the big one, guys, and that's MVP. Uh, it's it certainly – you can make a case for three or four different players, but really it's down to LeBron and Giannis. Uh, Rob, I'll start with you. Who are you going with and why? Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clearly Giannis. Um, I just think he's been far and away the best player uh, on the best team, not only this season, but you know the best regular season team that we've seen in a long time uh, by the numbers. And when you watch them, they're just especially dominant. And Giannis is at the heart. Uh, of all that, you know, 30, 14, and 6, we're going to get to Defensive Player of the Year talk later, but he's in that discussion, if not uh, the leader in the clubhouse there, so he does it on both ends. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I can't say I don't appreciate the season LeBron had and, and the, the late push that he made, um, and it seemed like the narrative 
uh, was sort of starting to shift and get a little bit more wobbly uh, in terms of Giannis's candidacy over him uh, when the season paused. But I think that breakup and the fact that we're getting an abbreviated close just doesn't give him enough time to to make up the ground um, based on the body of work that Giannis put forward all season. So um, I go with him as the most dominant player on the most dominant team, uh, stats to back it up. Um, and yeah, he's just, he's just awesome. He's the best player in basketball this year, in my opinion. Casey. Yeah. So the, I always struggle with this, uh, having lived through the second, you know, three peat of the Michael Jordan era and, you know, kind of seeing other people win an MVP while Michael Jordan was clearly the best player in the game. So I, I always have to ask myself, you know, how you define this award. And to me, it's uh, who is the most valuable player to his team and who had the best season. So uh, my answer for that is Giannis, uh, similar to Rob. And, you know, if you're asking me who the best player in the game is, uh, my answer is LeBron. But for most valuable player, uh, I have Giannis atop my ballot for a lot of the reasons that, that Rob said, and I, and I have LeBron second. Tony, you go to make a trifecta? Uh, yeah, I, I would like to first say that I've always thought that they needed some type of different award for best basketball player in the world. <laughs> and most valuable, I will always make that point whenever somebody asks me this because it's, it's two different things that we're discussing. I mean, we're talking about valuable all right who's been the most valued person on their individual roster or who what single person has contributed most to a team in terms of winning wise um I think that's different than this person is the best basketball player in the world this for this NBA season um I think I I know tradition says we try and blend the two in the MVP award but as we get more into the numbers and more into, you know, wins above replacement and all that stuff, I, I think we're coming to a time where, you know, we can separate the two and it's fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I had to choose one, <laughs> it, it'd be Giannis. Um, because I mean, he, what he's done, of course, the last couple seasons is um, hold that mantle. Um, that even though LeBron is still considered by many the the best player in the NBA and the best player in the world right now, Giannis is certainly challenging it. And he's putting it in with uh, the amount of games that he's playing. He's not really sitting out much. He's, he's absolutely contributing. And it's a bonus that he gets to sit most fourth quarters because they, you know, blow everybody out. Um, but he deserves the award. And I know we're going to get into defensive player of the year, but we, we, this, we might see it. For the first time since Jordan, a guy to win both MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. Yeah, I think Giannis deserves to make it two straight. Uh, the impact, I, I think that Milwaukee gets overlooked, and it's kind of hard to really justify that given that they're the top team in the league and they've got the best winning percentage. No, no, it's, um, it's justifiable. It's I, Milwaukee. It's fine. I don't think they're, res- I don't think they're respected nationally. I, I don't think they are. Um, you know, certainly – uh, for multiple reasons, I think a lot of people want to see the Lakers win the title. Uh, but the Bucks are having a historically amazing season, and they're led by the best player, arguably the best player in the league, certainly the player having the best season in the league, and Giannis. And so I'm with you. I think he's going to make it two straight. Uh, certainly, I don't think it's going to be a landslide win for Giannis. I think LeBron has had a great season 
especially given uh, the age he is at. Uh, you take that into consideration, and it's, it's really incredible mm-hmm. what he has done. Um, but I, I think Giannis makes it too straight. All right, next one. Sixth man of the year, KC. Let's start with you for that one. You know, this is uh, another tough one. I, I feel like every year these awards get harder and harder. To me, uh, the, I'll, I, this ballot goes three deep, um, and so I'll tell you the three that I was uh, wrestling with, and it's uh, Montrez Harrell, uh, Dennis Schroeder, and Lou Williams. And I had them um, in that order. Uh, Lou Williams is almost getting a little bit penalized here for the uh, familiarity syndrome. Um, you know, he's won it so many times that uh and it's also kind of weird to have two people from the same team mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> be up for six men of the year but I mean that's that's they meet the qualifications they came off the bench more than they started they're the more their minutes were reserved than than uh than starters so um they're both up for the award and uh I I wouldn't be surprised if anybody picks any order of those three because all three to me uh, are deserving of the award but uh, Harrell is, to me, so important to the way uh, the Clippers play, obviously at both ends. And he just brings the toughness to them as well. Um, so I, I, I'm giving him a little bit of a, a non-recency bias uh, and, and giving him the award this year. Rob? And we can't we can't agree on all these, Casey. <laughs> but, uh, I, <laughs> I also had Harrell. Um, I, I went back and forth. Uh, I, I had five guys that, that I pegged as kind of the people I was going to weigh. Uh, the same three as you, I, I had Harold Schroeder, because um, Schroeder has just been awesome, like a total reclamation season for him. Uh, coming off the bench for Oklahoma City, doing it, bo- doing it on both ends, a part of like one of the most wonkily dominant three-man um, units in the NBA. That three-guard lineup that they play is, is devastating. Uh, Oklahoma City with, uh, with Schroeder Paul. Um, and Shea, uh, that's, that's just an awesome, uh, little wrinkle that they have. Uh, I thought about Lou Will too. I had a little bit of fatigue in his, you know, he was shooting in the low forties percentage wise, you know, he's won it three times. I hate to use that as a point against someone, but, um, you know, compared to his own history, like the, the standout nature of it wasn't necessarily there. Uh, I also had Derek Rose in there. You, you have to consider him. Um, similar to Giannis who Tony, you pointed out, he sits out a lot of fourth quarters. I looked it up as you were talking and, for him to have the numbers that he has in only 30 minutes a game is just amazing or 31 minutes a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rose is kind of similar. He plays uh, 26 minutes a game for Detroit, mostly off the bench. Um, and when you, you know, blow that up to, to per 36, um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, the, the, the ding on Rose for me is, you know, it's kind of subjective when we factor in team success into these awards. I do think for something like six man of the year, as well as MVP, uh, team success is fairly important to me. I work into the calculus a little bit more. So, so he definitely gets knocked um, for that. Uh, and then I, I even thought about George Hill just leading the league in three-point percentage. I mean, you know, I just can't heap enough love on, on Milwaukee for what they did this season. So he's a distant fifth out of those five guys. But, but I did think about him and wanted to, to shout him out. Uh, but I went Harrell. I mean, uh, for the same reasons uh, you did, Casey, important to what they do. Um, 18 or 19 and eight. Uh, if you round up uh, off the bench, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. Um, at their, you know, it's, it's a very talented team. They don't really have a position of weakness. Um, but if they did, it would be center where they, where they start Zubat, um, alongside all the other kind of all NBA level guys that they have. Um, and Harold off the bench, he's just like the peak energy, big, uh, rebound scores, um, on one of the better teams in the league. 
obviously it's weird that you have to kind of extract him and, and Lou Will's impact from each other when you look at kind of the, 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 the statistical impact that either of them have uh, on the game. Um, but to me, Harold just embodies what a six man is um, and yeah, has the numbers to back it up. Um, and he was my guy. I mean, it's a, it's a tough field, uh, but I do feel like he got just a hair's edge uh, over Schroeder who, who I would have uh, number two there. Pun intended, hair's edge. There you go. <laughs> Tony, tell me you're going to make Kendall Gill happy and pick Derek Rose for this. Can't t- pick Derek. Like, he, they didn't win. <laughs> like, I mean, this, these awards are so, like, like Rob said, like, if you're not really on a winning team, it's tough to give you that award. And, and I think one day, you know, similar to, like, my MVP point, I think one day we're going to eventually get to kind of you know, giving the Cy Young to uh, a pitcher, the equivalent of, you know, that, giving it to a pitcher that didn't win a whole lot. Like, I, I think eventually we're going to get there because the numbers are just going to be so uh, detailed and actually who's doing what on a basketball court. Uh, but we're not there yet. So it's I, I can't really give it to Derek based, based off that, even though he had a, a fantastic season. Um, also, another question before I <laughs> kind of give my answer. Uh, how many six-man-in-a-year awards can you win before you can make it to the Hall of Fame? <laughs> He's got three, right? Is that right? Yeah. You Lou, assume you're talking about Lou? Yeah. Like, I mean, if you keep winning an award, like, you you got to be considered, right? Even though you didn't start and, you know, your minutes might not be as much as uh, – I mean, if you do the longevity thing, of course, you can make up the difference, but – by not starting, uh, I assume it's it's tough. Like, how many first ballot Hall of Famers were bench guys? I mean, you're asking the question, like, how many relievers are there in Baseball Hall of Fame, right? Like, you know, he's got a very specialized role that he excels in. And the, the question is, is he having, has he had, when he's done, a Hall of Fame career? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think the six-man part, necessarily is a detriment i think when you look at his contribution his numbers like uh, if i had a vote i wouldn't rule him out because well he didn't start so he wasn't good enough to be a top five player on his team therefore he shouldn't be in the basketball hall of fame like i wouldn't make that argument because it's kind of absurd that his role like the, the coaching staff it best sees lose role is hey there is value in you playing these this stretch of minutes off the bench against the second unit because we know you can cook. Like, to me, that, that's totally fine. I mean, I don't know if you guys feel like you should be disqualified for that because of it, but I, I think he's totally in his right, and I want to see his numbers when they're done before I fully say yes or no on the Hall of Fame. But to me, I would not rule him out just because he was a six-man. Yeah, I mean, well, no, but, uh, just, uh, before you guys give your answer, I just want to get mine. Like, I, I, Lou Williams should get the award. Like, that, that's what it is. He's the best six-man by the definition in the NBA, in my opinion. But I don't know if voters will just be kind of tired of giving it to him and handing it to him. They should really name the award after him. Um, so I think they're going to go either Montrez or, or Schroeder. But I think they're going to – I think Schroeder should get it just because, again, on the same team, giving it to another Clipper, um, which is crazy because Montrez was like – I didn't know what, what he was going to be at all once he got drafted. Like, I, I didn't know what he was. I didn't know what he could do. I Like, he's just a crazy person. He's like lesser Kenneth Fareed, and we've seen how Kenneth Fareed has kind of faded out the, the NBA. And so I thought Montrez was just going to be like that, but worse. But, I mean, he certainly 
worked on his game and got a lot better uh, the last few years. Uh, we saw a jump last year, and then he made another jump this year. But uh, what Dennis has done in Oklahoma City, what Chris Paul has done for that team where we all thought that they were just going to be a lottery team, and that wasn't the case. They went out there and won. So um, I, I'm giving my vote to uh, to Dennis. Rob, you want to say something about the Lou Williams? Yeah, yeah, I was going to chip in on the Hall of Fame thing. I, I think what would hurt him more in his Hall of Fame case than the than the sixth man of the, the year point, um, and we could throw Jamal Crawford in this conversation too because I think he also has three sixth men of the year, although he spent more time in his career as a starter than, than Lou has um, in spots. I think what hurts Lou more is his playoff numbers aren't particularly good, and I think if you're going to be uh, a sixth man kind of in that role, um, making a Hall of Fame case for yourself, you'd probably want – uh, a, a few more like signature playoff performances or even signature series uh, on your end uh, before kind of trying to jump to make that case. I'm looking at his numbers right now. Um, postseason, 12 points a game, uh, 38.5% from the floor, 26 from three. So, I mean, I, I don't know. It, that That's a pretty steep drop-off from what we uh, have been accustomed to to seeing from him in the regular season, so I think that would hurt him. Uh, but that was my only thought on the Lou Hall of Fame thing. Uh, I can't begrudge you for picking uh, Schroeder, Tony. I, th- I think he's absolutely deserving. Um, and, yeah, it's really just uh, a matter of subjectivity or, or who you choose or who you, who you prefer there. Tony, I do want to push back on the idea that the sixth man of the year has to be on a good team. Uh, to me, the only two of the major awards which really come into have to be on a good, to, if not great, team are coach of the year and MVP. I mean, you can't have an MVP on a 32-win team. You can't. No matter how good that player is, uh, to me, you can't. However, six-man, most improved, defensive player of the year and rookie of the year, I don't have any issue with those coming from, quote, bad teams. Like, it's – for instance, if the six-man of the year is on a 22-win team because that's the role that player is in and he's putting up great numbers – on that team, I, I I would not hold it against that player in the voting just because of they're not on a playoff team. Certainly MVP, absolutely. Coach of the year, absolutely. But I, I, to me, the other awards don't necessarily need that qualification. Um, but that, that's just my opinion. Why you got to hate on Andre Dawson like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or even, even my guy, Cal Ripken Jr., uh, won MVP in 91 on a very bad Orioles team. So, uh, yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. But uh, typically in the NBA, um, we don't see MVPs on, on, you know, quote, bad teams or non-playoff teams. All right, so from sixth man of the year to most improved player. And this one's a little bit controversial to me because historically uh, you don't have rookie to second-year players win most improved, but the seasons that we've seen from Trey Young and Luka Doncic may be an exception. Tony, let's start with you. Uh, do you take that into account? And if so, how much? And who are you giving the award to? Um, I like the – you're right. Like, I feel like Trey mm-hmm. and Luka have had such dynamic seasons, uh, at least offensively. Um, in their first two years that you feel like they need something <laughs> in terms of an award. Um, I, I am going to pick Luca, but also want Pascal Siakam. And I know that's weird too, because he's already 
uh, won the award once. And like, it's weird to give it to uh, a, a previous winner of Most Improved. But I think his, his secondary jump after already making his initial jump um, is something that needs to be noted because it's easy to – right, I can hide behind at least a little bit of the veterans of Kyle Lowry and Kawhi Leonard um, and kind of just follow their lead. But also after Kawhi is gone and Kyle Lowry has kind of um, – he's still a good basketball player, but he's we've come to find out he's not the build-around guy uh, anymore. Siakam really has propelled himself as a franchise guy for Toronto, in my opinion. Uh, and to make that jump is even rarer uh, to me. We've seen it, what, only a couple times, like Harden – uh, I think it was the last time we've seen, like, a guy that we were like, ah, you know, he's a good player, but can you actually build around him? I think Siakam has made that point that, yes, I am a build-around guy and not an added piece to or a potential trade option to get something bigger. I think, no, he's a staple guy, and I think he should be considered. But the season that Luka just had, and I can't give it a trade just because defensively he's the worst defender probably in NBA history statistically um but Luca is is my pick for most improved KC is that how you read it no I don't have either of those players on my ballot uh, I oh, actually cool. <laughs> I actually uh put a big stock into um the first to second year um thing because I think there should be a jump there now I agree that you know these were such transcendent jumps that you have at least have to consider it and I did consider it but to me there were um there were much more deserving candidates. Um, or I, I should say there are plenty of deserving candidates, so I was able to to just get past that. And then the Trey Young defensive thing, I just can't get past. So my ballot is um, Brandon Ingram is my uh, number one. Uh, he basically played the same role and the same amount of minutes as he did his last year with the Lakers. And just, to me, improved considerably across the board in all categories and just – I, I know that maybe he was more of a featured guy, obviously, in New Orleans, but um, I just saw a huge improvement from him going into a fourth season. So he's my leader. Um, I, I wanted to have Bam uh, win the award, but to me, he as much as he improved, and he is my second on my ballot, um, to me it was mostly a lot of it was just his, his playing time jump considerably. I think he's up 10, 11 minutes a game. So, obviously, your stats are going to um, improve a lot. Uh, I did think that he showed improvement, though, just in terms of the way he approached the game, particularly the defensive end. Um, so, he's my second place. And then, you know, similar to the argument Tony was using for Siakam, who's, who's a very deserving candidate as well, uh, I have Jason Tatum third because, to me, it's really hard to go from, you know, kind of that uh, really, really good player to kind of that star-level player. And that's what I thought Jason Tatum did um, – moving from year two to year three with the Celtics. So I've got uh, Ingram, Adebayo, and Tatum on my ballot. I think this is going to be a very contentious category. And uh, <laughs> that not even just with us, but when the award voting, the show, however they do it this year, when the, the results are tallied, I think it is going to be a very contentious category. So Rob, uh, where do you fall in terms of is Trey or Luca? Should they be considered eligible, or is it just because, like Casey said, a rookie should be making a big step up in their second season? Yeah, I, th I think that's a good point Casey made about um, 
that that leap being something that that should be expected, especially for two prospects that that are as uh, highly lauded as them and are both top five picks. Uh, but I'm glad we're talking about kind of the multiple ways that that this award specifically can be interpreted because you could even make an argument that um, what should be the main factor in this award is you know let's take the guys that have risen from you know complete obscurity to being um, contributing NBA whether they be role players or starters or even. Uh, guys that have star potential. I'm not saying either of these two do necessarily, but guys that I thought about are, you know, the Devonte Grahams of the world or the Duncan Robinsons um, guys that we really just hadn't heard about at all um, a year or two ago to this point. Uh, so, so you think about those guys. I thought about Trey uh, and Luca uh, Casey. I hear you on the Trey uh, defense point. Um, I, I hear the Luca argument. I definitely think a lot of people will vote for him and I, and I see it. Uh, I like the Siakam point because not only did he make uh, a jump kind of in the, in the counting stats realm, he also really changed the way he played to be the centerpiece of the Raptors um, offense and defense. He's their go-to on-ball guy on the defensive end. And he, he really moved from being kind of an off-screen catch-and-shoot dominant guy last year, obviously with Kawhi running the wing with him to, to, to taking on more ISO and, and PNR ball handler opportunities. And, um, everything about his game has grown with that change in responsibility. So, so I really respect that, even though he won the award last year. Um, he's definitely worthy of a shout-out. Uh, in terms, I didn't ballot it out um, in, in such an organized way, but the guy that I ended up landing on number one uh, was Bam. Uh, yeah, his, his playing time did increase pretty drastically, uh, and you would expect you know, a young, uh, talented player, uh, kind of like how we saw with Kobe White towards the end of this year, when the playing time increases – um, you're naturally just going to find your rhythm easier you're, and, it, and, it, and it makes it more natural uh, that those improvements would come. Uh, but he really did double his scoring average. Um, you know, that jump, jumper hasn't extended to, to the three-point line yet, but it's kind of making its way um, to being uh, a little bit more stretched out uh, his offensive game. He's, he's a complete hub. He's one of the best passing big men uh, in basketball. He'll be at the very, very top of that discussion soon. Uh, and then obviously all the things we, we talked about this on our all-defense pod uh, but all the stuff he does on the defensive end and the way he's able to wreck the game, uh, he's just so important to, to everything that Miami does. Uh, and this isn't to suggest that we didn't have a hint that this was coming from Bam, but I think uh, a leap from where he was a year ago this time to being, you know, one of the 15 or 20 guys that you think of first when you think about building a winning NBA team. Uh, I just think that's a tremendous leap um, that I think uh, deserves, you know, award recognition here. Um, although, like I said, with Luca and Trey, the leap from really, really good NBA player to superstar is probably the toughest leap in the sport. That's probably the most difficult one to make. And the fact that both of them seem to have made it in their second year, uh, is amazing. Uh, but I, I, I just love the season Bam had. Um, and, uh, I put him number one for this one. All right. So from a category, you could legitimately say five guys have potential of winning to rookie of the year in which I think it's probably going to be a landslide. So instead of me asking you you know, who you would pick, Ja, for this. I'm going to phrase the question in a different way. Zion, with apologies to him, was amazing in the 19 games that he played. In your mind, how many games would Zion have had to have played in order, at the same rate, you know, 23 a game, and certainly what we saw from him, how many games would Zion have had to have played in order to overtake Ja for rookie of the year. KC, I'll start with you. Well, it's a great question, Kevin. It, to me, it strikes really to the same issue that voters, including myself, faced with the Malcolm Brogdon, Joel Embiid uh, rookie of the year voting. Um, because I think everybody would recognize that Joel Embiid was probably the 
better player, but, you know, didn't play much his rookie year. And Brogdon, I believe, played all 82. I voted for Brogdon that year uh, and beat second. And uh, so I voted, again, Ja first and Zion second. Even though he only played that that few games, uh, he, he was so impactful in those games that he's second over my third pick, which is none. Um, but to answer your question, so extrapolating that out, um, what he played, you said he played 19 out of, yeah. you know, roughly whatever, 65 was kind of the norm for, for teams. So he's at about a third. Um, you know, I think B played 44 that year. So that was um, a little over half uh, and still not enough for me. So I would probably say you got to play, you know, 35, 38, somewhere in there to, to, to be considered, um, you know, to, to, to do – uh, to, to have the same impact that Ja did over his 59 games. Rob, is that kind of where you land as well? Yeah, yeah. I think if you extrapolate it out, uh, I'd, I'd probably like to see, if we're talking about the 82-game scale, I'd probably like to see somewhere in the 60 to 65 range, at least, if not maybe high 50s. Get, get close to that kind of two-thirds of the season so that um, you can really kick any small sample size arguments that uh, – that might be easy to make. I mean, it's easy to make those for young players when they when they get hot and go through these spurts that are amazing. What Zion did in his 19 games um, is pretty amazing, and, and he really did kind of uh, turn the Pelicans' fates. It seemed like they were a significantly better basketball team uh, from the point that uh, he started playing. He opens up and unlocks a lot of stuff from them. Um, but, yeah, Ja just over the full season, especially when you think about the surprise um, that Memphis is, uh, I, I just didn't even think too hard about this one. I didn't think you had to. Um, it, it was pretty far and away. Uh, clearly, Ja, I, if we're talking about the 65-game scale, yeah, what Casey said, I, I'd like to see high 30s, low 40s um, in terms of a game total there from uh, from Zion. But, you know, if we're talking about, again, like like Tony said if, uh, earlier, if we're going to do, you know, break this stuff up into rookie of the year or best rookie, rookie I want to build around the most, uh, it's still Zion. Um, I think that's closer than – Maybe it was on uh, draft night uh, when Zion went number one and, and John number two. Uh, but in terms of the single season award, when you look at the totality of it, it it's, it's clearly John. Uh, I just don't think Zion came particularly close to, to the game's requirement, even if he met the eye test and the statistical uh, you know, requisite requirements um, to be considered for it. Tony, uh, I want you to answer that original question, but my follow-up is also, is Kobe White in your top five? Yes. Um, he had some lulls, obviously, uh, during the season, but you saw what he could do at near peak of just a rookie season, which makes you enticed on what could be, you know, as he gets older and more mature and more experienced on, under his belt and what he could be uh, at the NBA level. So, yes, Kobe White is in my top five, um, but he doesn't win it just because of those lows were just kind of so low. Um, and they were, they were a pretty decent stretch in between games where he actually performed. So, um, but everybody's right. Ja is, is the person. And um, I'm looking at those 19 games and I'm like, <laughs> he averaged 23 points a game. And it's not like you give anybody, you know, a, a 19 game sample. Like it's still hard to average 23 points a game at, you know, shooting, you know, above 50% from the field. So it's still hard to do. And you still see signs of what he can be. Um, but given, even given a full season, like how many games does Zion actually play? Like, I mean, he did get hurt or, you know, it seemed like people were worried that he was getting hurt and it seemed like he was playing through some things. Um, 
So it it makes me wonder, like, how healthy can he stay in a in a season, a uh, full season that he's available to play? Uh, but yeah, like I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna lean towards more uh, Rob. Like I need at least two thirds of the season to see if you can. We know talent wise, you can play at this level, but as we all know, it's not about just what you can do on the court. You got to get to the court and stay there. Uh, as well to be, you know, mentioned in as one of the better players in the NBA, and that's my biggest worry with Zion. Uh, so yeah, I'm gonna need around two thirds of the season for for you to give to give you the award. Um, but yeah, Jaws the guy. All fair points. Uh, all right, moving on, Defensive Player of the Year, and then we kind of brought this up earlier about Giannis potentially winning uh, two. Um, Rob, I think you were of the mindset that you are gonna see Giannis win both, correct? Yeah, that's that's the way I saw it. Um, it. You know, certainly a lot of different cases to be made out there. A lot of deserving candidates, as there are. You know, we're just in a in a league with a lot of very talented players. So um, it, it's easy to to introduce a lot of names into this conversation. I just think the Bucks were not only the best defense in the league this season; they were by a pretty wide margin. Um, Giannis is on off numbers, which you know you got to take with a little bit of nuance to them. They're not they're not the be all end all. Uh, but are pretty ridiculous. They go from allowing 104.2 points for 100 possessions with him off the floor. When he's on the floor, um, they allow 96.5. So both of those numbers are tremendous. Uh, 104.2 would be in the top, you know, five to seven in the league, I think, without um, having it in front of me. Uh, but that 96.5 number is just absurd. Um, I, I haven't looked at the historical precedent of that, but um, it, it's just a pretty staggeringly low number. Uh, obviously, he goes one to five. And he's just the key that unlocks what makes their scheme uh, work so well, which is obviously well coached by Mike Budenholzer and it's well staffed with guys like Eric Bledsoe and, and Brooke Lopez, who we showed a lot of love to uh, on the last pod. Um, but I just think, and then, and then you look at Giannis, he, he might be the best rebounder in the game right now too, especially at his position. Uh, you know, we all know that's, that's part of defense. You got to finish the possession out and the Bucks are, you know, one of the better, if not the best defensive rebounding team in the league. Um, so that's kind of a small nugget of a part of uh, of my calculus, but I just think when you look at the overall the impact and and again just how dominant the Bucks were, I can't stress it enough. Uh, they really deserve um, an abundance of of flowers for the season they had, even if it, the momentum of it has kind of been dulled uh, by the hiatus. Um, I just think the the confluence of all those factors uh, leads me back to Giannis. Uh, Rob, I know you got to get out of here real soon for a uh, Sports Talk Live taping. Um, mm-hmm. Give us the Coach of the Year winner. Uh, before we uh, let you go. Uh, Nick Nurse, pretty easy decision. Uh, when you look at the development across the board, we've talked about Siakam, uh, Ananobi, OG Ananobi had a bounce back year. Uh, Fred Van Vliet, I mean, look at the way we talk about him. Um, just an amazing development story there. Uh, to, to squeeze the most in the latter stages of their careers out of uh, guys like Serge Ibaka, Marcus Gasol, uh, Norman Powell had an absurd uh, season. Um, so I, I just think when you look at them relative to the, to the preseason expectations where they are now is the second seed in the East. And, and to me, if it's not going to be Milwaukee out of the East, it's going to be them. Um, and you, and you just look at all the innovative stuff they do defensively scheming wise. And they, they also, by the metrics and by, you know, every observable uh, thing that you can observe they're they're one of the best defensive teams in the league. So um, I think that's Nick nurse. I think it's, it's pretty easy um, to make that determination single season. Um, all the familiar names, the Quinn Snyders, the Brad Stevens, the, the Budenholzers, I mean, Frank Vogel, Doc Rivers, all the, you know, it, all of those guys in the upper echelon of, of the league in terms of team record will be in the discussion. Uh, but Nick Nurse, I, I mean, has a, has a case for being the best coach in basketball right now um, and the coach of the year for the single season. So 
so for me, that was that, that was a pretty easy decision to make. Fantastic, Rob. Thank you for your time. Right. Uh, continuing the conversation with uh, Casey Johnson and Tony Gill here on the Bulls Talk podcast. Uh, Casey, in regards to Defensive Player of the Year, was this an easy selection for you? Yeah, we don't really need to overcomplicate this. <laughs> Giannis is is the best. Def- Giannis is the best defender on the league's best defensive team. Uh, and I, I'm glad brought, Rob brought up the defensive rebounding because I think that often gets uh, lost uh, in this discussion. Everyone thinks of defense as kind of you know stopping your man or moving your feet. Uh, I, rebound defensive rebounding. You talk to any coach. It's to me possibly the most important part of the defense because the possession doesn't end until you get the rebound. So uh, he's such a elite rebounder in traffic with his length and his strength. Um, so, yeah, this one to me is a, is a pretty simple one. Tony, you as well? We, uh, yeah, it's pretty simple. But, you know, we talked about it like Jason and KC on the, on, when we did the, uh, the defensive uh, teams. Um, it's who do you want to make a stop you know, at the end of the game, it's going to be Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> like, uh, in, in that purview, Kawhi Leonard, I think, is the best defender in the NBA. But with all that comes with this awards, amount of games played, and yada, 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 um, Giannis is the, is the easy pick. Um, and, yeah, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't that hard when you have to consider all of the, all the other things other than just looking at the defense. Uh, Giannis is going to be the easy one, and I get to say now in my lifetime, I've seen a person one win MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. <laughs> that speaks to your age, Tony, more than anything. Else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Coach of the Year. So obviously, we heard Rob's take on Nick Nurse, but I, I want to ask this question first, uh, Casey. When you're considering who you vote for, Coach of the Year isn't as clear cut as I think as people would think, because certainly you weigh heavily towards a team's win total. And, and Milwaukee uh, certainly um, has had a fantastic season. But how much do you also weigh in expectations versus reality or maybe team performance overcoming injury? Like what to you is the most significant factors when you decide coach of the year? Yeah, and that's why this award is so uh, difficult every year and also so hotly debated, I think, because a lot of times you get winners of, of, from teams that maybe exceed expectations. I think Billy Donovan needs to be in the discussion this year for that very reason. He's actually third on my ballot. But, you know, uh, the simple one would be, okay, the team that wins the most games, right? And, you know, Phil Jackson won one coach of the year award. That's still to me astonishing to this day and age. So it's almost like it's almost like it's almost like good good teams and good uh, good coaches for good teams get penalized because they have good players. So it, it is a fascinating debate, a difficult question. Um, I I kind of I, I I'm I guess I'm not always consistent myself in all the you know years I've been voting for this award um, because I have Budenholzer second on my ballot to Nick Nurse and you know Budenholzer coached the best regular season team in the league this year um but uh I do think for the reasons that that uh Rob enumerated uh particularly uh not only uh you know keeping that even keel of the gut punch of losing Kawhi and and kind of exceeding expectations but also I think Nick schematically probably takes um maybe a little bit more chances than most coaches tries some pretty different stuff uh particularly defensively. Um, you know, Budenholzer defensively is rock solid as well, but his is a little bit more 
traditional with his, you know, pack the paint uh, philosophy, whereas Nick kind of um, not junks it up, but just throws the kitchen sink sometimes. I mean, he'll zone, he'll box in one, <laughs> he'll do some crazy stuff. So it, it, I'm all over the place here, but my ballot is Nick Nurse one, Billy, uh, I'm sorry, Buttonholzer two, and Billy Donovan three. Um, but it's a really, really hard award every year. Yeah, the difficulty t- for me is, you know, certainly the expectations. You know, Kawhi leaves Toronto, you're, you're coming off a, a championship season, and the expectation was they were going to fall off significantly, at least not necessarily out of the playoff picture, but I don't think a lot of people thought they were going to be hosting a first-round uh, playoff game and had as much success as they had this season. Certainly you've got to give Nurse – uh, a huge amount of credit for that. But you're, you're right about Billy Donovan. Because to me, I didn't think the Thunder – and we talked about Chris Paul uh, last week about the season that he has had uh, in being part of the All-NBA team. Is A large part of the Thunder's success this season is because of Chris Paul, but it's also because of Billy Donovan. I mean, it, I thought they were going to be a 24-win team this year. Uh, and, and the success they had has kind of blown me away – given who they lost and who they, their entire franchise player. Uh, Tony, how much of that is a factor to you in terms of taking a team that was not expected to do well and doing very well? Um, like, where do you fall in terms of importance of criteria for Coach of the Year? I mean, like a lot of the awards, it's a lot of expectation base. We thought – as the basketball watching community, you were going to suck. And it turns out you didn't suck. So here's the, here's the award. Or we just, okay, best coach, uh, best team. That means they had the best coach. Um, so I think it's, it's fluid and it's year to year. And it's based on who we were most impressed, impressed by. Um, unless like, you know, Milwaukee, they were on a – at one point, they were on a, on a crazy pace to win, you know, high 70s, you know, games, and you just can't really deny that. Uh, but I think my pick is – oh, man, Casey's right. This, this award is really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when you consider everything, I think – you got to give it to Billy Donovan. Um, they are so close in hosting a first round playoff matchup uh, with the expectation that they were going to be really bad. Uh, and of course, Chris Paul has came in, did his thing. Uh, we mentioned Dennis Schroeder in this podcast earlier. Uh, but I think Billy Donovan, I thought Billy Donovan wasn't going to be a good NBA head coach. I thought that he had, had his chance with two MVPs and um, it didn't work out. And I thought, well, I mean, if he can't do it with those guys, I mean, what's the point of having him then? Uh, But he's really shown that he is a good coach and he can get the most out of his players. So my my selection is uh, Billy Donovan, one. Um, One person that I'm surprised isn't getting any uh, notice, just not even just in this podcast, but just overall is uh, Mike Malone uh, with the Nuggets. Like, I know – you know, they have a, a solidly built team, but he's, for me, has been a key, probably a main piece in setting everything up there uh, in terms of how they play, uh, getting the most, like nobody actually believes in them to win a championship, uh, but they play really solid basketball on both ends of the court. 
Um, and, and I know they've got an all nba in, in in Jokic, but for me, Mike Malone should be considered for this award. So he's on my, you know, radar as well as a as a potential winner or a guy he pro- who probably won't win, but I think should be considered. Yeah, and Tony, that just speaks to the depth. It's, it's so – I mean – why you were saying Mike Malone, which is certainly a, a good name to throw out there. Two other names just popped into my head. I mean, like this, and this just shows the depth you can go to with this award every year. I mean, Eric Spolster did a fantastic job, you know, with kind of turning the keys over to Jimmy Butler and, you know, maximizing out of Bayou and, and getting uh, what, what he got out of the rookies, you know, um, and just, I think Miami ex- exceeded expectations. And then another guy that to me, you know, he just kind of, you forget about him every year because he's been so great at his job every year. But Rick Carlisle is a fantastic, did a fantastic <laughs> job this year and does every year. But I mean, the Mavericks are certainly probably a little bit better. And, you know, obviously, you know, you're only as good as your players. So Luca deserves the main credit of that. But Rick Carlisle every year gets the most out of his team and is an elite coach every year. So it's an impossible award every year. It really is. Yeah. I mean, even Quinn Snyder is a little bit in that regard. There you go. Team success this season. Um, And that's just kind of part of it. So you're right. I mean, it's, you know, the, the awards certainly is something that is great to talk about and debate and and some are a lot easier than others. Uh, But you're right. Coach of the year is one of those that can be, really subjective uh but and it doesn't keep you and it, and it doesn't you know means you get to keep your job as we've seen with uh Dwayne Casey yeah yeah or yeah Dwayne Casey or was it uh Sam Mitchell we had Avery yeah. Johnson on the podcast recently and Avery said he won coach of the month or coach of the year then was fired <laughs> 10 games in <laughs> the, the the next year so yeah it just it kind of happens. Um, KC, uh, before we uh, say goodbye, what do you have cooking? I know you've got uh, coming up in July a uh, special piece on the 10-year anniversary or something, correct? Yeah, we're going to uh, tie something in, kind of breaking Bulls, hearts fan, uh, Bulls fans' hearts, uh, uh, tie into the 10-year anniversary of the decision, July 8th, kind of uh, review of how close the Bulls really were to land in that same big three that um, – that, that ended up in Miami. Um, I was working for the Chicago Tribune at the time, and all my reporting reflected a lot of optimism that some people might have scoffed at at the time because a lot of people are under the assumption that uh, that three hatched the idea to go to Miami uh, at the Beijing Olympics in 08. And, you know, what I reported, and we'll get into this in the piece, is that basically they just talked about trying to play together somewhere. It didn't necessarily have to be Miami, but um, – you know, runner-up uh, bridesmaids are for losers, right? So <laughs> the Bulls came in second, uh, but uh, it's going to be a look back at how close they really were to, to land in that same big three that, that landed in Miami. And then yeah, also so this – go ahead. And then also this week, uh, try to get a hold of uh, our guy, uh, uh, and, and I'm confident uh, that it's going to happen, uh, our guy Nico Miritich, who just uh, won – MVP yeah. award over in the Spanish league and is playing for a championship over in the Spanish league this year. So, um, you know, Nico obviously made a pretty uh, surprising decision last summer to leave the NBA and go back to Europe. It's something I talked to him about his last season here in Chicago with the bulls at, at length. And I always kind of had the vibe that he would do what he's doing now. He's living his best life over in Europe and his family's happy. So uh, hopefully we can get old uh, Nico on the phone and kind of break that down. Yeah, I cannot wait for that interview. I would love to hear his thoughts on the the team from uh, 
across the Atlantic and what he's thinking. Um, no, I was going to say that uh, for everybody who's been reading about, uh, you know, Brian Windhorst certainly did an excellent piece about the decision. But for those little nuggets that are in there about the Bulls, uh, look for KC's piece on July 8th, which will be 100% about the Bulls' point of view of that uh, stretch of time. So we cannot wait for that. And certainly we will have a podcast uh, kind of built around that piece because there are a lot of pieces uh, of that story, including Derek's recruitment, which uh, a lot of people have strong opinions on one way or another. So look for that on a future episode of the Bulls Talk podcast. Thanks for listening to the Bulls Talk podcast presented by Coors Light. Remember, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, any place you consume your podcasts. We will be there. Also, rate and review us. Give us five stars if you like the show. Give us one star if you don't. We hope you like the show every week. Uh, Remember to tune in to NBC Sports Chicago for all the latest news nightly on Sports Talk Live and Baseball Night in Chicago starting back up from Cubs and White Sox fans. Casey Johnson and Rob Schaefer do excellent work on the My Teams app and NBCSportsChicago.com as well, covering the Bulls. We hope you have a great week, everybody. I'm Mike Tirico, and on the next episode of Sports Uncovered, Marathon on Ice. I can't go more than 10 seconds yet. This is a fifth overtime, right? It was so bad that I thought my knees, my legs were going to buckle and my knees were going to blow up. I got an IV after the fourth period, and I went out and I started, and I completely seized up. (laughs) I completely cramped up, and I'm standing on the ice going, I can't move right now. Subscribe to Sports Uncovered for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on Carol. She's more focused on hitting a high note than the car in front of her. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates Northbrook, Illinois.